This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. Uh, Joe, in our last episode, we played two fantastic talks about the importance of relationships that really uh, nourish uh, caregivers like us. And um, it's important. I want us to continue on that a little bit. Today's episode will be answering uh, questions that our listeners have sent us and some of the questions you've seen on our Facebook page. Um, But for me, the the topic of self-care and building meaningful relationships, I think it is so important for chaplains because chaplains are always giving. Remember at the height of the pandemic last, uh, last year, every meeting that we had, chaplains were trying to find ways to reach out to the staff, how to care for mm-hmm. the staff, for the leadership, for the patients. And then when we do all that, sometimes we forget to take care of one another. Absolutely. Um, it's a, an essential part of who we are as, uh, I'll call it, spiritual givers. Yeah. And it's very easy for us to feel a lot of satisfaction that we have done something right with a family or our colleagues or whatever. And then we go home and we crash and burn and don't take care of ourselves. Uh, I think it's significant from what we've learned and what we've heard and what we hopefully will take into consideration about giving grace to ourselves. Mm. Uh, you know, I talk about that all the time when I'm with families, especially with caregivers, uh, about how good of a job they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I don't always hear that about what I do. Yeah. Do you find that, Saul? Yes. Yes. Um, I think <laughs> we don't hear that much. <laughs> <laughs> I so don't think is, so. It is important to find a support system. You know, I hear that from my support system, mm-hmm. but not from the leadership, you know. So, and many chaplains, like I was talking to a chaplain the other day, like, I have a census of over 100 patients and I'm doing all my best, but I don't even hear a thank you from the leadership. Now, wow, that's awful. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, the thing that really trips my trigger though, Saul, quite <laughs> frankly. Yeah. And there is a nurse's week. Yeah. This week there was health aid week or health aid day. Yes. And I'm not really very familiar when it is for chaplain day. <laughs> and I just remember, you know, and here I am and, and, you know, am I asked, am I, am I, I want to be acknowledged. I want to yeah. be recognized. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, throughout the pandemic, we heard about all those essential workers and, how and you see the pictures of them on TV and how they're being interviewed and it's you know nurses doctors but what about the other folks that are there whether they were feeding the patients 
you know, making yeah. the food, yeah. washing the floors. Yeah. You don't see them. Yes, you, you know, they'll say, oh, yes, they are essential workers and they've been recognized. Not to the extent that I see that, you know, someone who, of course, has hands-on experience with someone. Yeah. And we do have hands-on, even though we're not clinical. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, it is such a gift that we receive as chaplains to be able to do what we do. Yeah. And, you know, we're as equally as important as, as the nurse. So it's important, really. Um, uh, it's, it's good that you're talking about recognition, and I've been thinking about this. We, we, hospice chaplains will be la- launching an annual uh, chaplain of the year uh, recognition. So please send in your submission if you feel a chaplain deserves the recognition of chaplain of the year, either through hard work or research. Whatever the chaplain has done, please send us that. And it is our job to honor the profession. Absolutely. And to honor the chaplains who are carrying the umbrella for hospice chaplaincy. So if I put you in, Saul, will you put me in? (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But... (laughs) You are funny, but, <laughs> but you see, so make sure that you take care of yourself. Make sure that you have a good supportive relationship around you, you know, take good care of your body, you know, and. Exactly. And, and, you know, the other part that I think we're also missing here, Saul, is mm. our spiritual focus, our focus on what it is, how God has filled us with this gift. And how do we replenish that yeah. after we've given so much of ourselves? And I'm not just saying, you know, I know that we both like to exercise and we both like to be active. Yeah. And that adds a lot to our uh, help us in our recovery, if you want to call it that. But I, I, there are times that I feel that I've, that I've not been as spiritually filled as I could be. And I think we all need to recognize as chaplains that that doesn't always, you know, we rely on that and we know that God is going to be there for us. And sometimes that can be, as I learned in seminary, cheap grace. Yeah. Because we've got to really recognize how God has touched us. Yes. So it's important to replenish, you know, Absolutely. your spiritual well. Uh-huh. Uh, as we pour out compassion, as we pour out love, as we pour out charity, mercy, you have to find ways to replenish that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, Dr. Abel there talking about compassion, that stuck with me yeah. from our talk with, with Julian there. He and the idea of what it is that we need to give to folks and what, how it is that we can then be a society of caring, compassionate folks. And, that's, and, if, we're, and if we're burnt out, that's not going to happen very easily. So I, I agree, Saul. We need to take our time for ourselves. So uh, especially in the, in, the, in the area of census, I've noticed and I'm getting so many emails from chaplains around the country. Uh, they have, <laughs> most chaplains have census of over 100 patients. How that can, is not how healthy. Can, how can that be? That is not healthy. So please talk to your organization. Over 100, <laughs> no chaplain should carry such a huge census. I was told when I came into hospice chaplaincy for the first time many years ago that if you had a census of 40 to 50 people, 
that was really full time and it was really pushing the limits. Yeah. And to hear now that there are censuses of over a hundred or close to a hundred patients, how can anybody do a compassionate ministry with all of those people? It's, it's impossible. It is impossible. You can't do it. That's right. Yeah. You know, they become just the statistic where they say, did you meet this person? Yes. What did you do? Uh, I prayed with them. Then move on. That's not, that's not chaplaincy. That's not hospice chaplaincy in my book. Yeah. I mean, they, it, it's, uh, it's really, I didn't realize that it was that high. It is that high. So and that's why we are preaching a lot today on self-care. Yeah, and on also make sure that you can defend yourself, advocate for yourself to have a reasonable. Uh, I recommend sixty. Oh, I sixty would be doable. Yeah, but I, I mean, what was I just thinking? I just lost it. But I, I'm thinking about the idea that that you need you by that the hospice chaplain has to learn how to say no. And yeah, and be able to. Re- recognize that there is a boundary that you could, you know, you talking 60 patients as a max, that's really, to me, at the utmost of the, of the boundary of what is appropriate. I mean, they've gone so far beyond by just saying, okay, and how can you meet and really minister to a hundred people? And if you're, if you're going once a month, it's impossible. That, so you end up just doing initial assessments without right. follow-up. Exactly. <laughs> without follow-up. What do you business? do if there's a crisis? And they're really needing your, you know, if you take two hours with someone, there you go. You've missed three, four visits. I mean, that just, not not good. It's not healthy. So we'll dive into answering some questions. Anne uh, sent a question about pet therapy. As you all know, Joe is our national (laughs) pet therapy expert. (laughs) Somewhat so. So so here's the first question. She has a series of questions. Sure. But the first is, what does a person need to work as a pet therapist? I'm guessing that the question is, how is it you get to be a pet to be a pet therapy dog? There we go. That's what I'm thinking about. And what I would uh, say to that person who is looking into doing this would be to get online, look for pet therapy, uh, just look for pet therapy, and they'll give you a definition of what it is. Then you're going to have to look at what it is that that certain organization, because there are a number of organizations throughout the country that will uh, authorize or uh, give you some sort of certification that you are have a therapy dog. Because there's a test that has to go through, that the dog has to go through with the owner. And I'm not sure if they're all the same, what the test is. Uh, the one I went through with Mizuno was, I did it twice with him because I let his certification lapse. And I did it the second time, and it was the exact same thing. Which company did you use? Which organization? Oh, oh, Therapy Dogs International. I did it with them. And they have uh, a list of expectations of what the dog is supposed to do. And then you need to train your dog to be able to do those things. There are certain things like, uh, how are they going to react around wheelchairs, walkers, uh, loud noises? Things that can cause them to be very distracted, like noises. Uh, there are things like they put actually put 
bacon on the floor mm. and your dog is to walk past that bacon and not even sniff at it because wow. you realize that a dog can go into a facility and someone drops some medication on the floor. And if the dog is used to, you know, picking things up off the floor and eating them like at home, all of a sudden they're going to go and do that. And it could be something that could kill them mm. or make them very, very ill. So that, to me, was a significant thing. The other thing that you have to do is be able to make sure you can control your dog. By control means that they listen to you. When you tell them to sit, they sit. When they tell them you to lie down, you lay, lay down, and they stay there until you tell them to move. Uh, it, takes, it took me, quite frankly, uh, close to, maybe it was even over a year to train my dog to be able to do that where I trusted him. Uh, he was pretty, he was very good at it and did it. And I know that there's some people who say, well, I could do it in a shorter period of time. God bless you. Good for you. But that is one of the things. So you need to check out what the organization that you're going to get yourself reg your, uh, certified through. And then you find out, uh, then you find out where the test is going to be. And then you go take the test. So do you recommend any organization? Uh, I think every organization would be appropriate. Oh, okay. Uh, but I use Therapy Dogs International because I found it first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I actually had a person who does uh, dog training uh, help me initially, well, not initially, near the end of the training to make sure that I had trained Mizuno appropriately. Mm. And... Like I said, it we, we went through, when we went on the first time, there were about seven or eight other dogs there. And my dog was given the honor of being the, the having the best uh, personality. He, he interacted with all the other dogs without any other problems or anything. Wow. And I was very proud of that. I mean, he just, you know, <laughs> besides getting through the certification very easily. Yeah. And then he has a second question. Okay. When finding a job, who gets employed? The person, the dog, or both? Oh, it's absolutely the person. The dog is just part of the program. Uh, I, you know, how it happened with me was uh, at Angel's Grace. Uh, I came along and really had only really began to understand. I had, I had gone to a hospital for surgery a number of years ago, and they had pet therapy there. And I didn't want my dog just to be a, a pet therapy dog in the hospital. I wanted him to be going to homes, going to, you know, and it's the same, it's the same training and the same everything to go either home, hospital, or whatever. I know that the hospitals are a little more strict because, of course, you're dealing with uh, more people and that kind of walking around there all the time in the hospital. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the thought of me walking in, I mean, I was, my, my pet therapy was an addition to, it wasn't, it wasn't the main reason of why I was still employed at Angel's Grace. They just offered that. If you were to be, and I want to clarify this because if you join up uh, with an organization such as Therapy Dogs International, uh, you are doing that as a volunteer basis, totally volunteer. 
and they have uh, they have their own list of agencies and situations, whether they be libraries or other areas where they are asked to send therapy dogs there. And I did not want to go that route. Uh, I would have, but I couldn't do it at that time because I didn't have enough time. Uh, so I was fortunate that Angel's Grace allowed me to do it with their care under. So I was still the chaplain, but I also had to differentiate when I brought the dog in. Yeah. So to answer the question clearly, the person is the one that gets employed. Yes, the, the, the person gets then. employed, and if you, and if the, and if the, if there's enough thought by the hiring entity that they want this pet therapy along with you, then just tell them I can do that as well. Yeah, and then the last is, what else would you advise me on pet therapy? Uh, I'm not sure what she's looking for with that question. But, uh, but uh, you know, let me, let me just say this, Saul. Let mm -hmm. me just say this. I've seen dogs that have been brought into facilities who are under the consideration of pet therapy. You, whoever is thinking of doing this, know your dog and what they're capable of doing and what their personality is. You know, you need to look at that honestly. Uh, you know, some dogs go in and they just want to play. Uh, I don't think that's pet therapy. I mean, I was very fortunate and very blessed to have a dog that I felt, in my estimation and my observation and from other people who have been telling me, that knew what was going on at the time mm -hmm. with that patient or family that I was visiting. And he would act accordingly without me directing him, without me saying, oh, go over there and get, you know, here, let me come over here and you can, you, you know, sit here and then let you pet the dog. No, he would go over there on his own. And to me, that just is, you know, when I think of pet therapy, that's pet therapy. If you're bringing a pet in to just visit people, that's just a pet being brought in to visit people. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, the, the story I have, and I might, might have shared this before in this, uh, in our time together, uh, when after my dad died and I brought my puppy and my dog to see my mom, and this was even before I did any pet therapy stuff with him, mm. training or anything. And he would be sitting on the middle of the floor. My mom would be crying. She'd be all upset. My mom is, and I mean, she was, he, Mizuno was, you know, sitting there watching what was going on. And he would get up. The first time I noticed this, he got up, walked over to my mom, sat beside her. Mm. And she started petting him and everything changed. Hmm. Mom was smiling. Mom stopped crying. Mom was, you know, all of that. And I thought, yes, he knew what to do. I didn't tell him to go over there and see my mom. Yeah. Uh, he, he did it all knew. on his own. And that was him from every, every, on many, many occasions. So many, I could fill this whole time up we have together with stories. But so if someone really wants to, you know, check their dog out and see how well they are and make sure they have the maturity uh, to do this. It, it takes time. It's not something that you're going to do like tomorrow. Yeah. So it's a process. Yes. You know, very analyze so. your dog, make sure that he or she is ready. Uh, pet therapy has made a tremendous improvement to hospice as a whole. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it has, you know, pet therapy has shown that there's been a lot of improvement in patient satisfaction 
in energy levels, self-esteem, and mood. So it is really a powerful tool for any hospice. Oh, very much so. And yeah. and you know, you know, Saul, there's other animals that do it equally as well as a dog. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know of cats. I've heard of horses. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there are many other animals that might do the same thing for people. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break and then we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, we are back. Uh, we were talking about pet therapy. But uh, a few weeks ago, I discovered a new type of therapy. Um, <laughs> I was visiting a patient, and uh, then the daughter of this patient walked in with two big picture frames. And uh, one was for the deceased wife. Uh-huh. And the other was Tina Turner. Tina <laughs> <laughs> <Tina> Turner? <laughs> and so the <laughs> so here's the daughter coming, you know, the dad is dying and you know, to you know, improve the mood and offer some therapy. Yeah. So according to her, her dad actually loved Tina Turner. <laughs> that even his wife knew about that. <laughs> She so said, brought, brought pictures in. She awesome. shared a story of, you know, one time many years ago when Tina Turner had a concert in Chicago and the dad went there and apparently she turned to a section where he was and he sang and he's like, Tina Turner sang to me. <laughs> so, so I'm like, wow, this, this is therapeutic. So to have this oh. big sexy picture up there in front of him, uh, uh, brought at least a sense of comfort. Absolutely. Um, so I realized the role of cultural icons ah. as therapeutic tools. What do you think? Have you ever encountered I've never even, I've not thought of that, but I, I bet you if we were to sit down and talk to a lot of men, male patients, they would have an iconic sports figure yeah. that they really, you know, really felt very, you know, Attached to, I guess you would say, and you can, you know, and 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 you know, you bring that up, Saul, and I start thinking about some of the, my past patients. I had a guy that I visited once who was a World War II vet, mm. and he was in his little den, and all I saw were the planes that he he flew during World War II all over his room. Had to bring him an enormous amount of comfort, but it also, you know, it reminded him that he was worthy. Yeah. And although he did not like talking about what he did, it was very significant to him because he had models, you know, these little models and all that, and they were, they were throughout the room. But it's impressive, though, that he had those pictures. Yes, because yeah. it was a significant yeah. reminder to him of what it is. And it yeah. actually, I felt it sometimes it brought him a sense of peace. Yeah, it's icon iconic. 
And I never really, uh, I've never really thought about it until I encountered that lady with Tina Turner pictures. <laughs> because if you go to the bedroom of any, maybe even in the dorm room of any young man or young woman, like I go to my son's room and he has a picture of a soccer player. Sure. You know, so we have these icons that we admire. And every time when I thought of iconography as, as a therapeutic tool, I'm thinking of the icons of the church. Ah, you see, yes. But I didn't think that even cultural icons can actually be therapeutic tools. You know that. I don't know. I'm sure you've walked into a new patient's room and someone who has a form of dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever. And there are rooms that are filled with pictures of family, and there are rooms that are bare and have nothing anywhere. I wonder if, if it would be significant because we walk in at a time when they would not tell us what it is that is important in their life. Mm. And hopefully we could find that out. Uh, you know, you know that when you walk in and you see all the pictures of family, that it was a significant part of who that person was yeah. and how that brings them comfort. The thought of pictures and as you call it, iconology, uh, I think that's something that is not really recognized as well as it should be. Yeah. So it really piqued my interest. And I think there's a lot of research that needs to be uh, to be done there. I assign you that song. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so let's transition. On our Facebook okay. group, I've seen a lot of questions uh, every once in a while. Uh, questions of how do you make the first call as a chaplain? And that every time I see that, I'm reminded of a time many years ago when I did my clinical pastoral education, we would sit in the class and then after that we'd be assigned to go to the floors. And this one of the guys I was uh, doing the training with, <laughs> he was so scared to knock on the doors of the hospital rooms and introduce himself. So he would, you know, hide in the elevator, move from every floor. He's just standing there in the elevator, <laughs> going to the sixth floor, eighth floor, first floor. He's just, just going there because he cannot <laughs> gather the courage to get out and knock on rooms and introduce himself as a chaplain and attempt a visit. What? Yeah. What was? What was the, the, that? Did, you had to have talked about that in class. What is the worst that could happen? Perhaps it is uh, maybe rejection. Well, I, oh. that's true, but yet, you know, if you, I was thinking of this before we ca I came here today about that whole yeah. situation, and I'm like, you know, there are so many examples of us as chaplains, the spiritual presence that we bring into this thing, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm rather, as you are, Saul, uh, I'm an extrovert. And I don't find a problem doing that, and I don't care where it is that I'm going. And, of course, I have a lot more experience. I've done it. I'm not afraid of rejection, number one. Mm. Uh, I've, been, I've been rejected so many times. The first few times it hurts, it stings. Uh, you don't like it. But we are, you know, think about the biblical story of Jesus. And how many, you know, and you think about it, and you go there, and, and you think, well, I don't like being rejected. But look at how rejected Jesus was. Yeah. So, but the thing is, but rejection the, might be one of the issues. Right. But my assumption is rejection might be one of it. And maybe another one is 
Maybe I don't want to interrupt. Maybe the passion is oh, sleeping. Well, they, or... can tell, they, yes, <laughs> they, they can tell you if they're not interested. That's not rejection. You're think, acknowledging yeah. their presence and you're acknowledging them. for And if they don't want you there, they'll tell you. Yeah. And when I was doing my trade, some of the patients were even funny. Where well, you know, come, I'm the chaplain. Oh, am I dying? You know, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely you right. Know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they will actually let you know you're right. Whether they they're open to talking or they just want to rest, and then you move on. Yep. But for this brother, it was so hard. It oh. was so hard, and I can see that it's hard for many chaplains to even make that phone call mm-hmm. and introduce yourself. Oh, but the phone call is easy because it's on the phone. You don't have to do the face-to-face. So what's it's your the, routine? I mean, my, what's my routine? Uh, my routine has developed as, you know, even to this day, it's still the same thing where I find that a phone call, you know, I introduce myself. All I do is just say, hey, I'm, I'm, I, I, I say my name. I tell them I'm the chaplain. Uh looking to find an, uh, an opportunity to visit with them and their loved one. And whether it's in their home or in a facility or whatever it is. And if they're not available, can you give me some information about this person, especially if that person is not able to provide it themselves. The patient mm-hmm. is not to themselves. Mm-hmm. I-, I want some background. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they came in, if they answer the phone and say, you know, there's no way you're going to be allowed into that room. You can try. But you're not going to be let into that room. I've never been, it's very rarely that I get told not to come in. Mm. And uh, I remember one occasion where there was this couple that I went to see, an elderly, you know, 95-year-old couple. And I walk in and, you know, I think I probably caught them not at a real good time because they said, you know, we really don't care for your visit. And I'm like, okay. Number one, that what that says to me, I got a challenge here and I'm going to go face it. <laughs> why is it they you don't love want a me? challenge oh i do love a challenge and all that <laughs> and if they're really adamant and all that then i back off and i and i i respect everything that they they say of me but i i i feel so strong in what it is that i provide and i'm not saying me i'm saying god that i'm representing yeah. that i can provide that they need to know about it and I mean, uh, I mean, it was funny because yesterday I met a new patient and I walk into her. I mean, I knock on the door. Come on in. Come on in. I knock again. Come on in. I said, the door is locked. <laughs> so she had to come and open the door for me. And, and, in, and in the uh, admission report, it said that we weren't supposed to use the word hospice. Hmm. I kind of remembered that when I walked into the apartment, cause I was trying to explain to her who I was and I walk in and I said, you know, I work and on the, on the refrigerator is our, our magnet up there with our net phone number and angels grace hospice on it. And I said, I work for angels grace hospice and I'm waiting for boom, get out of here. I don't want to. You know. <laughs> we sat down and we had a heck of a talk and she admits flat out. She is not that, religious, which gave me all the opening in the world just to talk about her and her life and what she enjoyed. Mm. Had a delightful time with her and, oh yeah, you can come back. I said, great, I'll be visiting you regularly. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and I've had those people that go in and I say, and I meet my, and I explain to them who I am and I offer them whatever it is that I can offer. And they say, thank you very much. Yeah. Or no, they don't even say thank you very much. You can tell by their demeanor and how they respond that they're not interested. And you have to pick up on that so that you don't, yeah. you don't do something that could be, in, you know, not helpful. Yeah. I think it's important for chaplains, at least for the first visit, even if they will eventually decline chaplain visits, find ways to make the first assessment, mm -hmm. the initial mm -hmm. assessment, mm -hmm. by letting them know I'm part of the team and uh, I have, you know, come do this assessment and from there we can decide. If you exactly. don't want us to come back, then we won't come back. That's right. But uh, just let me in um, <laughs> to I... come in and do this assessment. So find ways... Uh, to communicate, you know, with, with strength, um, with confidence, because chaplains offer a lot to the table. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I was, this was, this was when I was in CPE, which is yeah, many, time. many, many years ago. And I was in a hospital and uh, in our class, we have on-call responsibilities, of course. And one of our, one of the uh, chaplains was, on call one evening, and there was a, a death. It happened to be an infant that died during birth or maybe was dead in utero, not sure. Mm. And he was called in to provide a baptism for this. The family wanted a baptism for this, this newborn. And I'm like, oh, what a, what a special moment in my mind thinking, you know, to be invited into that because that's really, that's really an intimate time to be with a family especially with an infant. And the story goes that he went into the room and the baby was uh, being held by mom. And he didn't want to hold the baby. And he baptized the baby without touching it with a cotton swab, dipped in water and baptized the baby. And, you know, we don't find out how we are going to respond to things by that when we are training in our chaplaincy until something like that with a guy running up and down the elevator or someone who is so freaked out, quite frankly, about a baby's death and unable to really do what the family wanted him to do. Uh, that gentleman left the program shortly after that. Uh, very, very telling of what what is it that we should be doing. You know, we <clears throat> we have to be able to recognize our insecurities and our our fears. Yeah. And you know, if you have a fear to walk into that person's room, think about that and why it is, and what 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 is that person? What are you presenting to them? If you're going in scared, you know, you, that's why we need really to be on a solid foothold when we decide to walk in that door. I think it's important to know yourself. Yes. To know your limitations, your weaknesses, and your strength. And if you find a weakness, find ways to, to strengthen it. I, would, I wouldn't have encouraged him to leave the program uh, oh, that but, was his choice. Yeah. You no, know, that wasn't something that I know that our supervisor would say to him. Yeah. Uh, 
He just left. He yeah. realized he couldn't do this. He couldn't do it. And But that's something you have to recognize. And if that's something you can't do, and if all of a sudden you're in the church or in another chaplaincy program and and asked to do that, and you, you know, th- um, someone could get in a lot of hot water because, you know, there could be some sort of really negative review yeah. about what the hospital is, has yeah. done yeah. or not done. That's true. So, wow. Uh, <laughs> what a story, man. Oh, it was, <laughs> it was, incre- I mean, I, it, it, I mean, it, I just was, I was, I remember feeling, I still have that feeling of like, you know, first off, why couldn't he touch the infant or hold the infant? I mean, it was you know, probably not as big as hand. Hmm. I mean, I've done that. I've had the opportunity to do that on one occasion. And I mean, it was a preemie that was just tiny. Just Could it be tiny. that he had had uh, something like that happen to him? You, you, you know, he, he wasn't around to talk about that, yeah. to, to acknowledge that fear. Because I have a story, maybe not similar, but uh, related to a child death. I might have shared this. I was doing my residency at Elmhurst, and uh, my son was five years old by then. So I was on call. And then I get a call, you know, to the a unit, and this five-year-old boy just died. Oh. And the mother, you know, was holding him intensely, yeah. and she's crying. And I, I wake up from my sleep around midnight. I go up there to comfort and seeing the emotion, seeing the age, the same age as my son. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that had to send all kinds of emotions. My, it, it, it hit me through, you know, so many emotions hit me at once. Yeah. But for some reason, I remained composed. Did the visit. I don't know how. Oh, you we know how. Come on, Saul. You know how it happens. <laughs> then I left. I took the elevator. I got down and I got lost. I didn't know where my bedroom was in the hospital where I was sleeping. I just sat yep. down. Yep. I sat down by the elevator. Then the security guard sees, sees me on camera. <laughs> so many things we are going through. Should I go home, check on my son, make sure he's okay? So oh, yeah. uh, in the process of caring, there are many things that really trigger and send us through so many different emotions at the same time. Yeah. So thankfully, the, the security guard saw me and he came. He said, Chap, what's going on? I said, man, I just had this intense visit. Can you show me where my overnight room is? <laughs> <laughs> he led me to my room. I went and at least rest. I, I don't think I could sleep again. Oh. <laughs> But at least I, I was able to rest a little bit. Um, but yeah, so there are things, you know, when we are not, we see in, in this, as we practice, mm-hmm. that really touch us in many different ways. And I, yeah. <laughs> Have you had I mean, it's, like it's, that? it's, you know, you laugh about it now, but it was, it just knocked your socks oh, off. It, yes. That's the right word to do. Yeah. yeah that's the right socks word. socks off. Yeah. It, yeah. And I, I, I didn't know how to regroup. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I, for some reason, yeah. So by God's grace, I stayed calm throughout the visit, provided the care that young mother needed. And um, yeah, it's, that's the challenge of ministry. So, oh, it absolutely. And- so I wonder if, you know, seeing this still born, I don't know, whatever it triggered in him that he was not able to do his practice well. There are things like that that happen that knock us off. Oh, absolutely. Just, just 
trips are uh, trips are triggered that you didn't ever heard before. <laughs> so know yourself as as you get into this profession of care. Find ways to you know become better. One of the, one of the ways that that I think that as a chaplain, one of the things is you're about ready to knock on a door, and you might have been, you might have looked at the chart. You might have read all the information that was sent to you on a text or whatever it may be, and you don't know what you're walking in when you come to that door. Mm. And when you're knocking on that door, the next thing you're th- you're you're scared, you're uncertain, but know that you're going in with with a purpose, yeah. and that your purpose is good and right. And there should be no fear with that because you know you've. You know, all you need to do is say a little prayer, God help me. Just mm. God help me even, I think, is just enough to say, you know, let me be calm. Let me be the presence of which I am called to do this. And you go in and you walk into the door, going all the way back to that question. And of how do you not, you know, if you don't think you're worthy, then you shouldn't be knocking on the door. Mm. And you are worthy. Everybody who listens to this and hears this and has been having had questions about it, or if you want to do something like this uh, and visit people, uh, there is a reason why you're there. There's a reason why you're there. In fact, uh, when when we interview chaplains on this show, one of my favorite questions is, what is your theology of care? Yep. Because your theology of care shows, you know, uh, how you embrace your calling. You know, theology is the study yep. of God and the knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. So how does my knowledge of God impact how I take care of the dying, how I see the dying, and how exactly. I provide care for them? And once you have that, I think that is a, a tremendous framework to be able to, uh, you know, address every situation. Yeah. You know, the first question, that, you know, like you say, though, is, is, is the question is how do you how do you, as you say, you know, your theology, but it's also the understanding of what do you think of death? Mm-hmm. What yeah. is death? Is it scary? Is it, is that your, by that, these the chaplain's understanding of what, uh, uh, you met Bob Stout, my friend, yeah. that, that uh, you were his chaplain. And I would, Bob and I would talk about this before he died, about what he felt about death, and he was not afraid of death. But he also said, I don't know if there's a heaven. You know, and he's my, he was my entire ministry career, chaplaincy career mentor. And he is admitting that he's not sure what it was, but it didn't scare him. Mm. He just wants to know, you know, he, he hopes for the best and knows what could be real. Mm. And and then it, and he, it served him in his ministry in his life so wonderfully. Yeah. And you know you have to know how you're going to address these situations. Uh, you know some of these folks, it's it's just too much, and you can't do it. Yeah. Amen. Anything else? Wow, time has flown by. Anything, Is it really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything else we have in our Oh, let me think about this for a minute here, Saul. Uh, one, can I, can I, can we yeah. just bring up one more thing here, yeah. Saul, that I yeah. just really, uh, especially when we start talking about what 
I've seen on Facebook, people who are sending out information about on hospicechaplaincy.com. And, you know, their uncertainty, like you're saying, they're, the, the people have been writing a lot about, as you said, census, a lot about uh, doing uh, their documentation and all that stuff. I know documentation is exceedingly important. I know that companies give you a quota of how many people you should be visiting each day. Uh, I unfortunately find that that very troubling because we're not doing this in a, like you're, you're making cars or building houses or whatever it is. This is something like that. And, and, and I, I am, it, all, it just seems to me sometimes, and I'm, there, and I'm probably way out of line, mm. that sometimes that is more important than the patient. Mm. And that, I mean, to me, I want our profession to be professional. Mm. And to stand up for our patients and to stand up for what is best for them and what is right. Uh, I mean, someone having to put in a hundred census, they're not able to be professional because they're being pulled away from all the, you know, you figure you visit a hundred people and you have a hundred documentations to do. My God. I mean, do they sleep? It's hard to build relationships. Absolutely. That's that, perfect. That heal. And that's what we're in here for. Yeah. To build those therapeutic relationships, spiritual relationships with our patients. Yeah. Uh, it's so challenging enough to die and then to think that you have to be, have someone come in who's being pulled in several different directions and can't do that. Yeah. It's tough. It really is. It's, it's a, tough. It is a hard, hard, hard thing for us that we do. And uh, so what's your final thought? What's your advice to the chaplains who are required? Oh, I tell them to stand up and fight like hell, but I don't think that it will happen. No? <laughs> Why not? I think that was, I think that was in a movie somewhere. <laughs> fight like, but I just, you know, I, I want them to really remember what it is that they are called to do. That's my advice to the, to, to the chaplains that are, are presently working and and for those who want to become part of that. Mm. And uh, it's a special group we are in my book as hospice chaplains. Yeah. Remember your calling. Exactly. Remember why you fell in love with this profession. Remember mm -hmm. why you love this helping profession. And... Um, Many companies uh, really don't do well <laughs> in helping healthcare professionals, you know, maintain a good health right. balance so they can continue to work. And that's uh, right. And if you can if you're not healthy, you're not being you're not being helpful, really. You're not being helpful. I think I remember watching one doctor say that, you know, many healthcare organizations are, you know, overloading the staff with so much work. Mm -hmm. And when the staff is unable to cope, they say you're burnt out. Exactly. So he says the, the word, you know, being burnt out is like blaming the victim, mm -hmm. you know, because here's a victim, here's a, here's a staff who loves to help, but you've given him so many patients, him or her so many patients that is unable to help the way they want to help. 
So you're act- actually causing them moral injury. Exactly. And when they can't fully function, you say they're burned out. <laughs> and nobody's helping them along the and route. Nobody's helping them. That's out. right. Yeah. Acknowledging the fact that, hey, you know, you need a little time. Yeah. Yep. So we'll end this episode the same way we started it. Please find ways to take care of yourself. Amen. As Do you that. continue to help others. Absolutely. Blessings. Thank you for listening. Thank you all. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.